Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Welcome everyone to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk, Understanding Hypothermia. The image of a seriously injured person wrapped in a foil sheet is a familiar picture and is often perceived as a recognised solution to address casualty heat loss. How we prevent or manage hypothermia is an important factor in our aim of maximising survival and minimising suffering. But why is it so important and what are the critical areas that we should consider when understanding and managing the condition? Are the standard responses effective or should we be thinking differently? To talk us through this important subject tonight, we welcome Jorgen Malou, PhD. Jorgen has studied the subject in great depth and I'm hugely excited to, to talk with him tonight to learn more about the subject. So good, good morning, Jorgen. It's absolutely wonderful to have you on um, TSG Talk. Thank you for your time. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here on your, your excellent podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, and, and, and likewise, uh, I, th this subject in particular is one I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you and, and, and get, getting your thoughts on it. So it's wonderful to have you along. Just checking, are you in Norway at the moment? Is that, is that where you are just now? Yes, I am in Norway at the moment, okay. the moment in the southern part of Norway, near near Oslo. Yeah, oh, very nice, <laughs> very nice. <laughs> so, Jorgen, just before um, we begin the actual subject tonight, could you just maybe outline to our listeners a little bit about about your own background, and then maybe just expand a little bit more about the work that you've done on hypothermia and, and some of your PhD research. Yes, I can. I am a trained nurse specialized in anesthesiology. Uh, I have worked almost all my career uh, pre-hospitally, uh, some in the armed forces and some in the ambulance services. Uh, then I worked 10 years in the air ambulance in the northern part of Norway, in the Arctic, as a, as a rescue paramedic. Um, the last years i've been doing a phd in physiology and uh, more specifically in temperature physiology and the reason i i started this work is uh, maybe as always a bit of a coincidence but i have also been the chief of the medical and safety teams at a rather hard endurance race the norseman extreme triathlon and uh, that race is well known for its uh, its uh, rough terrain and cold weather. So I, I basically started my PhD to see if it was safe to swim in cold waters, because you have a lot of cold waters at uh, at the race and in Norway in in general. So during my PhD studies, the uh, the um, Norwegian Armed Forces showed interest. So I did a few studies with the. Norwegian uh, Naval Special Forces, which of uh, well, uh, obvious reason have a have an interest in in performing in cold waters, and I know uh, my PhD work is finished, and I do work now in the Norwegian Armed Forces as a researcher in the cold weather research group. There, one of my interests is hypothermia research of course and specifically how we can improve our care for the patients in the cold and to how to treat hypothermia pre-hospital um, and i think one of the strange uh, my strong side as a researcher is, uh, is that i have 
have a lot of uh, practical experience. I've been out there as both as a rescuer in the Arctic and also from my former military work. So I, I think that's uh, that's who I am. I, um, my my presentation for now. Okay, no, that's absolutely fascinating, uh, and uh, and I think what I find really important is just what what you what you said at the end there is that your your research is is based on a, a lot of practical experience with pre-hospital medicine in uh, very uh, adverse environments but then that's linked to a really really high-end academic study and and i think that's probably the, the a really nice fit to pull that all together um as i say i think studying hypothermia is is, is a fascinating subject but when you've probably been close to hypothermic many times yourself and probably been hypothermic it I think it makes it a bit more reality as well. Uh, when you, you, you've, you've been in those conditions and you've, uh, you've experienced difficulty and dexterity, all the symptoms of being cold, stressed, I think that, that's, that really puts massive amount of strength into, into, into what you're doing. Uh, yeah, no, but, but because I think uh, <coughs> the, uh, as a researcher, we can very easily see that, for instance, uh, as a hypothermia wrap, uh, that fabric... Uh, X is uh, better, has a better insulation than fabric Y, but but uh, it is a huge uh, practical side of using different types of hypothermia wrapping that that's also is very, very important to address. And uh, we cannot just have um, numbers uh, mm -hmm. and, and statistics uh, steering our hypothermia prevention efforts. We also need to address the practical sides of, uh, of using different types of hypothermia hypothermia gear so I, I think that's important yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and i can't agree more and and i think you're fairly aware of some of the work that we've been doing on hypothermia and working in cold rooms as well and uh probably one of the best experiences i've come across with hypothermia is when i took myself hypothermic um and then experienced the, the sort of deep muscle shivering and and all the various sort of nuances of being of being mildly hypothermic, although I think obviously with my own military experience and outdoor experience, I've probably been there before, but to actually clinically monitor myself being hypothermic, I learned so much about what it's like, and then some some of the some of the things you really have to consider. Uh, I think that that I say that is that linking the practical to the the theory. I think really really gives strength in in the in the work that we're doing. No, absolutely fascinating. Just just um, just moving on from that. Um, what we what we see certainly in the UK at the moment, um, and I think it's fairly consistent in in many other countries, is when we see pre-hospital approach to hypothermia and and uh, moderately to seriously injured people, they're, they're often wrapped in, in some foil system, um, whether that's a single layer of foil or, or multiple layers of foil. foil. And, and, and that's something I've always doubted. Um, and I just would like to get your thoughts on what do you think the validity of that sort of response is? And, and have you got any idea why it's become so popular as well. And any any thoughts on that area at all? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> you you touched on a bit of my. We're, we're in a bit of a minefield now, but, <laughs> but that's uh, that's uh, how uh, probably how we like it. Uh, I have for several years actually been talking against the use of reflective uh, foil. Uh, lastly, on uh, on uh, LinkedIn, <laughs> I have had a few posts there on uh, on uh, why we not should use the uh, the reflective foils, and I get a huge lot of uh, responses on posts like that. And the thing is, there there is still a lot of people that swear to the use of uh, of reflective foils. Um, I, I could talk for hours about only the reflective foils, but but to try to be short and precise, mm -hmm. I uh, it, the reflective foil do not have any insulation. That is a very important factor. It does does not protect against uh, the the conductive heat loss. You know when you lay on the on the ground or on mm -hmm. the floor or anything, it doesn't prevent heat loss to the ground. Um, I think. One of the it, it claims that it will reflect heat due to radiation, 
so that uh, to say it in the kind of layman's term that the, the heat from the patient will be reflected back to the to the patient uh, when uh, when hit, hitting the the reflective foil but but the the thing is that a hypothermic patient do not radiate much heat at all so that that is a statement that uh, both scientifically and practical is is very easy to uh, say that is not correct. A few other practicals about the I should say standard reflective for is that it's very hard to wrap in a way that prevent evaporation from the patient because it's very hard to get it uh, tight and uh, and. Um, and uh, prevent the evaporation and the the same with the, the convective heat loss it's very very hard to prevent using a reflective foil and not to uh, mention um, the <laughs> the practical ways that you have to you know when you're standing in the mountains uh, in uh, with a hypothermic patient it is never good weather it's always bad weather it's raining and it's always snowing and it's windy and it's very very hard to use and it's just tear uh very easily uh i know there are lots of uh, manufacturers that have made improvement to the reflective foils but still i think one of the most important pitfalls of it is that the uh, it it does claim that it's 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 kind of stop or or prevent the radiative heat loss, but that is a statement that I don't agree on. And there is also very many that claims that it has many additional uses, like the, you can use it like an improvised tourniquet or or um, things like that, and that that might be correct. Uh, but still, its its main use is supposed to be to hypothermia prevention, and and I I don't think it's very good for that. Um, the reflective foil is always there. <laughs> I, I just recently bought a new car, and in the first aid kit in the car, it's a reflective foil, of course. So it's it's uh, it's always available. And uh, and many says many people say it's probably better better than having nothing at all, and that also s- might be true. But I still have some uh, some doubts about that because the main my main concern is actually if people have the foil, they think that they are all set to prevent hypothermia. And that mm. is that is actually my main concern. And for people, you know, like you and me that is experienced in in uh, emergency medicine and, and um, hypothermia, uh, it's not a problem. But for the main, uh, the, the layman uh, and the general public, it's a, uh, it's, I'm concerned about that because because they think uh, I, I'm, if it gets cold and my body in the uh, on this camping trip gets cold, I can just wrap it in in this foil and he's all good. But that, that's not the case. So, well, I that that is kind of like a summary of what mm. I about the reflective foils. No, I I think that lot makes a lot of sense, and it and it. Probably, I'm going to say it reflects what we think, which is uh, probably a good word <laughs> to use. Um, I, I, I really agree with this false sense, false sense of security that you've picked up on, um, where people believe if they've got the foil blanket, then they believe they're addressing, they're addressing heat loss or some form of, of uh, onset of hypothermia. I think that's one of my biggest worries is that they, once they've put it on, they think, okay, I've done that and my job's complete on, on that particular aspect. Um, that's the biggest one. Um, it is interesting. Uh, obviously, we see lots of pictures coming out of Ukraine and the amount of trauma casualties I see in pictures that are still wrapped in foil. And you just think, are we really, really addressing the heat loss for these seriously injured people? Or is this another case of people believe they're doing something for hypothermia because that's that's what we've got? So I think it's a very serious area to consider. I, I, 
I think if uh, the type of like a mass casualty would happen or it does happen, but if you have, if you would see kind of similar incidents in Great Britain or Norway, you also would see the reflective foils mm-hmm. popping up. So yeah. I, I don't think that's uh, that's special for the uh, for the uh, crisis in Ukraine. Uh, but um, being a member of the armed forces we uh, we um, in the in the nato context we do all we can to to uh, address the issue about hypothermia also during the war in ukraine so i hope it, yeah. i hope we will see improvement uh, there and they also do a lot of good work uh, work yes, there so just uh, just have to mention that no, I think you're absolutely right. Some of the level of care it's gone on is absolutely wonderful, and we've we've met yeah. quite, we've met quite a few of the medics out there, and and what they're dealing with is 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 just one horrendous, but their 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 approach to it is is un, unbelievably good. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. agree with you. We have to mention the the, the 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 amount of good work that they're doing. Just just one thing I would like to bring out on the foil. It's a little test that we do, um, actually within my own family. If I'm I've ever taken my children out camping, and we tend to camp all the seasons in the UK, uh, what I often say to them, uh, and it's not very scientific, but I think it's important. Um, I, I, sh- I ask them what they want to sleep in when they go camping and I'll put maybe two or three sleeping bags out and I'll put um, a foil system out and I say to them, what do you want to take for, for camping tonight? And every time they will pick the most appropriate insulation. So if we're, you know, if we're in summer, they'll pick a one season bag. If we're going up maybe for an overnight, uh, maybe in December with a bit of snow on the ground, then they'll pick a, a possibly a three season bag. They never, ever pick foil. Um, and I suppose what I use that when I'm teaching the subject is to say, if my children, when they want to go camping, will always pick appropriate insulation. Why, why would it ever be appropriately to put a seriously injured person in and think that will retain heat? It just, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, yeah I, I see some of the, when I've been at the air ambulance, we see several times that people are uh, on an accident site in the mountains are wrapped in in a reflective foil, but they still the patient actually have a sleeping bag mm. lying in, next to them, and they have a mm. sleeping bag maybe as a pillow or something <clears throat> like that, but they are wrapped in the reflective foils. So so it's it's the re- reflective foil has been kind of like marked as a wonder. Mm. Uh, wonder wonder gear <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think some of the early um, commercials for the reflective foil was that this was developed by by uh, uh, nasa nasa the uh, and, and that's i think that's uh, one of the reasons for for its popularity and of course it is very small so it is very easy to uh, to carry so so that that is a that, that is something that that probably has led to the popularity of the foil. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's bit, it is possibly being driven by the, the the sheer, you know, minimum weight and minimum size it provides, yep. and then the market behind that. It's you know, it's it's the space blanket, so it's it is magical. Which I think we probably both agree it, it's not. Um, yep. It was a really interesting area I picked up when you were talking through it about conduction heat loss as well. Certainly, um, the work that we did in the cold rooms, we we found that was by far the most important aspect to address. And it's really interesting. I find most hypothermia systems don't really seem to think about it too much. Uh, but we found if you didn't get something underneath someone, we, we just couldn't get them out of a hypothermic state. Um, I don't know if you've kept, come across sim- similar findings. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have, yeah, and for our, um, let's say, the, the Special Forces medic, we always, uh, in their high, hypothermia kind of system we always use a um, a sleeping mattress beneath the patients to insulate from the ground so we always use that that is in their their kit for hypothermia prevention so that that is that is very important and we're actually doing a study now uh, to see what kind of insulation effect different kind of mattresses have because the armed forces have standard sleeping mattresses that can be a bit, um, um, let's say they can be a bit small and uh, hard to lay on, but they still have some insulation value. So <coughs> this should actually be incorporated in the in the guidelines for hypothermia prevention because they are also always there, at least in the mil- mm. military operations. So 
Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's uh, it's the one thing we we pick up quite a lot when we look at people address hypothermia. Um, they're often there's a lot of emphasis on what you put on top of someone, but incredibly rarely in, within systems and within kits are are insulated methods underneath somebody in, included as standard. Um, and as I say, I think um, we, we both agree the conduction heat loss is, is is a massive factor if we're going to address this appropriately. Now that that's yeah. that's really interesting. Just um, just moving on from that. Um, did you have any sort of direct experiences of uh, managing a hyperthermia that you could pass on to listeners? I think I remember reading on one of your posts on LinkedIn when you first came across hypothermia in the military, uh, and you, you wrote a really interesting post about it. But have you got any other any stories around your own experience in managing hyperthermia that, that you think would be worth worth passing on? I think I uh, I can use use that uh, that story because my my real first encounter with hypothermia was many years ago when I was a, uh, at the junior officer training school and we were on long ski marches on uh, during several days in the winter basic uh, winter training uh, so we ski marched for fifty minutes and then we had ten minutes of rest and with some occasional ambushes from our enemies that was of course our instructors on one of the evening we were setting off camp and uh, sending out pairs of soldiers to guard the camp and during the night my uh, tent was suddenly awake by one of the soldiers on guard that stated shouted that his body was unconscious on his uh, guard post so we were 19 20 years old and we didn't have much experience with 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 anything and at least not in first aid and at that time and we found our body unconscious in the uh, in the guard post and uh, obviously cold and our understanding was that this was a matter of life and, and death and that is a very kind of powerful feeling when you're 19 years old and we carried him through heavy snow back to our uh, our tent, uh, which we had already started to preheat. And um, we removed his clothes and put on some of our own clothes. And he was wet and cold. And then we waked our instructors. And uh, he was later airlifted to the hospital with the air ambulance, which later... Was would be my workplace, which I didn't know at that time, of course. Um, but the thing is, we had found him sleeping, or he he was unconscious uh, when we found him. But his guard buddy uh, let him sleep at his post to be to be kind of nice to him. Uh, however, we had been on a ski mars all day, and that is very heavy. We were sweating and and wet. And it turns out that he had been using a cotton cotton t-shirt and not the armed forces kind of standard woolen shirts. I, I think that actually started my interest for temperature physiology because now I see this in a, I wouldn't say a different light, but a more informed light what, what's happened on that incident. And I've been on several um hypothermic patients after this and i also been hypothermic myself uh but i think this was one of my most powerful incidents because this was so early in my career i've been on much worse hypothermia patient uh, than this uh, later but uh, but this is a very powerful experience so that is something i always come come back to yeah, I, I think the first time you ever come across it with with uh, with, with uh, a colleague or or a casualty you're attending is always one that sticks sticks yeah. in your memory quite uh, quite 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 significantly. No, that that's that's um, that's that's a very good story to to pass on, and I certainly um, I understand the. Uh, what it's like to do your 50 minutes of ski marching and your 10 minutes rest. But uh, thankfully, when I was doing that in an expedition work, I wasn't being ambushed. So uh, you probably had it slightly <laughs> harder than me. So, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you pointed out there that probably one of the causes that why your, your, your colleague did get hypothermia was was the base layer that he was, he was working in. Uh, and it wasn't wool, that it was cotton and not wool. And it is amazing when you're working in these extreme climates, how those bits of detail really matter. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, we in in Norway we do a lot of training with allied forces. You know, the the allied forces coming to Norway to do winter training, and we always have to start with the basic: how you dress, because they have never experienced real cold, or many of them haven't experienced real cold weather, and they haven't been experienced being very active when it's cold uh, and that is that is uh, it, it is quite easy to manage when you know what to do but if you dress uh, improperly then you will not uh, survive long in in arctic conditions so it, it is so important and we use a lot of time and effort on that when we are uh, when allied forces come to Norway to to train because they are completely lost if they mm. do get cold and wet and uh, yeah so yeah 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 the, the phrase attention to detail is uh, one that yeah that, that you always apply in the Arctic yeah um, I, I mean I'll always sing the praises of um, when when we were crossing Greenland uh, we we all wore uh, merino wear uh, merino merino wool base layers. And um, they, they they were just perfect, uh, but it was that attention to detail of everything um, when when you're working on those extremes that I think does make the difference. So I think that's a really important point. If anybody is working in the more Arctic and extreme environments, the the detail does matter, um, and it makes a difference. And it could be the difference between literally life and death or an evacuation. Um, so I think that one anybody is looking to work, go to these places is is worth pointing out. It, it really. These things matter, and when when they're told to do them, there's a reason why we're telling people to do them. I think that's yeah, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Just uh, just moving on on that again, going to your experience both in your research and um, your, your 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 practical experience of hypothermia. If if you were to maybe bring out three points um, from your work that we could pass on to listeners that may enhance their future care of a hypothermic person or the prevention of hypothermia. Well, what, what do you think those three points might be? Well, I would say, um, regarding hypothermia, I, I would mm. say prepare a good kit that mm. includes, um, uh, gear for hypothermia management. Mm. And, uh, you can use, uh, pre-made, uh, solutions. The, the many are very, very good, but you can also uh, use methods from many of the things you already have, like, like a sleeping bag. And uh, I think the, the important thing regarding the gear and kit you want to use it, that there is actually no kit that fits all <laughs> you have to adapt to your specific needs and your uh, your mission and uh, very often you cannot carry all you want so we have to prioritize on bulk and weight and uh, and benefit of the the kit it, it is a huge difference if you are a volunteer on a rescue vessel because then you probably can have a lot of gear with you but if you're jumping, parachuting out of an airplane, you you can't have the same amount of kit. So that's that's just to uh, to give a picture of how it how it can be. So I prepare a good uh, kit. I would also one of the thing I'm experimenting with now. I actually been doing for the last maybe ten years is because one of the hard things to do good in pre-hospital management of hypothermia is the the actual temperature measuring hmm. how how should we measure core temperature and then it's that sounds very easy but it's it's not and one of the things i've been experimenting with is to use a normal household thermometer uh, the one that has an indoor and an outdoor sensor. The outdoor sensor is through a wire. And then you use the outdoor sensor, put it in the axilla of the, uh, in the armpit of the patient. And then do you, you wrap the indoor sensor on the outside of your hypothermia wrap, mm -hmm. uh, like the burrito wrap <clears throat> or something like that. And the thing is that it's actually pretty accurate. I, I've done several tests also with comparing it with validated temperature measuring okay. instruments. Yeah. So at the moment, I will start doing more of a kind of like scientific approach to this. Yeah. So I, I actually encourage people to do some experimenting with this. Um, yeah. 
And also, thirdly, I would say that remember also hypothermia when it's not very cold. Uh, an injured or sick patient easily will have their have a not very functional temperature regulations. So you can uh, the, your patient can get very cold even if you are warm yourself. I would say it's a kind of good way to remember it, and that that we also have seen that that is a daily occurrences in pre-hospital medicine that people get hypothermic even when it's rather warm outside no i think that that's uh, that's uh, three three pointers for now <laughs> no that those those are excellent if i can just expand on the, on them a little bit from from the points that you brought out i think what you're saying is uh, preparing your equipment is is so important uh, you know really thinking about if i'm dealing with somebody who could go hypothermic you know whether that's a cold environment or as you as you brought out there trauma induced hypothermia even on a warm day what have I got practically to address that? You know, if I've got to go ultra lightweight, what's my ability to adapt? Um, how, how could I generate my active heat if, if I need to do active heat without maybe having the space to bring the, the definitive equipment? How would I insulate? What would I put underneath them with what I've got? Um, I think that thought process before you deploy wherever you're going is, is so important. And, and I think if by the time you get your patient or your casualty, you've already got the solution in your head and how you're going to address it with what you've got, depending on the circumstance you're in. I think that is so important. If you've got to think about it when your casualty arrives with you, I think you're already behind the curve and it becomes yeah. a bit more difficult. So that preparation, um, and I think with most things in pre-hospital medicine and especially remote medicine, is uh, it sort of fits with everything, doesn't it? Our preparation is is key to most things, but really, really thinking through what your approach would be and how you would adapt with, within your parameters is, is so important. Um, the temperature measuring is really interesting. Um, we, we've talked to quite a few colleagues, um, some really interesting conversations with the cave rescue in the UK and how they do that as well. And they, they, they agree, absolutely agreed, but you're saying it's very difficult to measure temperature and also have all your, um, your monitoring equipment exposed so you can see what that it's monitoring as well. Um, and I think they were agreeing with you is that there's, there's lots of different ways, but there's still quite a lot of research to be done. One of the things uh, our cave rescue colleagues brought out is that the, the number in the temperature is important, but they, they very much were looking at the whole body as well. What were all the signs and symptoms, the skin color, the levels of consciousness, and then the number of the temperature. And it was grouped into a wider set of observations as opposed to just focusing on the on the, on the temperature number. So I think that that was quite a good point they brought out because it is at the moment quite variable um, and not to be focused just on the number, which was which I thought was quite a good point. I, I, I think, uh, if I may, because uh, I completely agree. And w one of the other things uh, I, we've been uh, working on is also uh, skin temperature. Mm -hmm. And then we place skin temperature sensors on various heights of the body. Because it is very interesting to see, maybe or for, as an example, that uh, during a cave rescue, that the skin temperature in the leg, for instance, uh, is starting to drop. Well, that is a sign that we, uh, get rid with, with all the other symptoms, have to consider why is the limbs now getting colder? Well, uh, I, it might be that uh, the uh, the skin temperature is compensating you know so that uh, less blood flow to the skin and the uh, the uh, the the body actually is on the start of getting hypothermic mm -hmm. and it's now starting to prioritize the blood flow to different parts of the skin and we can maybe catch that early on and then you said another very important thing and that is to do a very good basic assessment of the patient with also include skin color and skin temperature and you know all the other things it's hugely important we will not rely solely on the numbers because it can be many factor many factors that influence the the uh, the uh, actual numbers we are getting out of our instruments so 
Yeah. 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 I thought I thought that was excellent. Uh, it will be really fascinating to see your, your your research on the temperature monitoring and the, you know the how accurate can it be or or is it accurate at all? It will be fascinating to see some more some more detail being put into that. I know it's certainly an area a lot of bring up that a lot of people in these more remote areas bring up that there are it can be quite a variable number that we get out of the monitoring that, that we actually use. Um, the last point you brought up I thought was really interesting and it's something I come across quite a lot um, if I'm if I'm training people in this subject is that people can be hypothermic in warm warm areas. Most people that I talk to usually associate hypothermia with um, you know with, with, with the rain and the cold and the snow um, but they don't often associate trauma they don't often think about trauma induced hypothermia in, in warm climates um and I, and I think i've always found when i'm teaching it is trying to get people thinking about if basically if we're losing blood we don't have warm sticky fluid flowing around us and we can't generate our own heat hmm. but i often find people sometimes don't think that way and it needs a bit of prompting to say on a warm day could you be hypothermic and then get them to think that way so i think that's really important that if we're dealing with seriously injured people and, and there's this blood loss involved or, or possibly severe head injury, then our ability to internally generate the heat is, is compromised. So even in warm days, we have to think hypothermia, which again, in my experience, I, I don't find is that well understood. And it's maybe something that's worth emphasizing. Um, and and if, if, it can, if that sort of piece of information can help our listeners to really think about it when they're dealing with trauma, I, I think that would be of benefit as well. Yeah, it, it would uh, would be um, and um, uh, blood loss and hypothermia is a is a killer. We know that, and trauma patients that do get hypothermic has a very very um, it, it, they they are in big big trouble because it's very hard to to stop the blood loss for the uh, surgeons and also to to heat them up again. So so trauma and hypothermia is a very deadly combination uh, that we um, that we have to do all we can to to address. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a fascinating area. I've um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks I've just written a blog about trauma induced hypothermia. Uh, to try and to explain it simpler for maybe people who are coming in at a first aid level to understand it. So I'd love to run it past you and get your thoughts if I'm I'm, I'm explaining it correctly. So uh, I might sure. I might I might pass that by you and and uh, and, and see what you think. I, I would just like to add one thing, if 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 you don't mind, on on maybe points on hypothermia management. Um, I think I often find people are quite good at insulating the patient. Um, but I also say as a medic, you've also got to retain your access to the patient as well because your treatment's going to have to continue. So one of the things I often ask uh, people that I'm uh, teaching is if you insulate your patient correctly, and, and maybe you do put them in a burrito, which is, is a very good system, I often say to them, depending on the injury they've got, can you still have access to your patients? Because obviously we've got to tenu- continue our role. You know, the patient remains injured and we'll, we'll, we'll need continuation of training. So I often ask them how they would address still getting to your patient without losing heat. I don't know if you've yeah. come across anything anything like that at all. No, uh, yeah, I, I think it's very similar to one of my main uh, research problems that I am pondering about now because uh, we we do a lot of different uh, research projects and also yeah and and. I, I might be drag you in another in another way here now, but it's it's a kind of like the same thing. One of the things we are looking into is the evaporation and moisture inside the burrito mm. wrap, mm-hmm. and that is a potentially huge problem because the evaporative heat loss can be massive, much much more that um, that I realized uh, when I started my my PhD. But I know know that the evaporation heat loss can be enormous, and we are really unsure if we have the best solutions here. Uh, at the moment, some wrap the patient in an inner layer that is uh, supposed to be in the kind of like an evaporation layer to to stop the evaporation from the patient, and some use liner with absorbent material, and uh, and we are not completely sure that we uh, have the best solution here yet, and and we really need to investigate that more mm. uh, about the 
evaporation layer to, to take that first. Um, can you really wrap the patient so good that you stop evaporation? No, probably not. And then there is the thing with the opening of the wrapping because you do need to open the wrap somehow when you are doing, let's say, like a cave rescue or a, a very challenging mountain rescue. You need to open the wrap at some points to do proper evaluation of the patient. And also, if you are able to pack the patient with an evaporation layer that is 100% damp tight which i doubt you are but let's say that you can because the it is said that a uh, hundred percent humid uh, environment doesn't evaporate but it it still does so you can still have evaporation from the pa patients even if the uh, air around the patient it's hundred um, percent humid so so that that is that is something we look into. And I think the the solution here might be to focus on very good, I think it's properly, proper to call it nursing care. Mm. You, you actually have to open uh, the burrito wrap and maybe you have to, at least regarding hypothermia and, and evaporation, maybe you have to use a... a um, cloth or a hand a towel and and um, and super absorbent towel and dry the patient from time to time and and also i know that several manufacturers use a a absorbent liner beneath the patient i think that is also very good but still um I just read in the paper that there is probably a cave rescue for many days going on in Turkey at the moment. Uh, and if if I, I don't know the details on that, and I but 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 let's say there is a cave rescue going on for several days, you you need to deal with the evaporation from the patient, and I, then a the only using a liner beneath the patient a super absorbent liner is probably not enough and i know that is an extreme example but still um we that that is the environment we we work in and also like the the what is very uh, let's say popular in the, in the armed forces and at the moment is the prolonged field care of patients and if we are to have patients uh, casualties in a burrito wrap for several hours or days, uh, we need to address many nursing care issues. And among them are uh, are the drying of uh, probably the drying of the skin. We don't have much experience with that yet, but but that is something we have to have to sort out. So so one of our research. Uh, uh, main focuses now is is addressing the evaporation from the patient. A long answer to a to a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's that's a wonderful answer as well. Um, it, it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot as well. And and again, when when I uh, have the privilege to teach the subject, um, one one of the questions I always raise is when you put your patient in, in a hypothermia prevention system, how would you access them? But I always, and I think you're right, there, there are ways that you can absorb fluid and people talk about vapor barriers and all sorts of things like that. But I do believe the gold standard is very, very good nursing care, that attention to detail, regular um, examination and regular drying of the patient. Um, it's I often find it interesting. We always spend lots of time on the, the, the really exciting trauma care side of life. And I sometimes find in teaching that we don't always focus on the the, the fine detail of probably the more mundane tasks of, of really good, high quality nursing care as, as we evacuate with someone. Obviously in prolonged field care, but even in moderate, maybe one or two hour um, extractions, you know, our patients, if, if they're wet for that period of time, they're, they're deteriorating unnecessarily. So I think you're right, that a constant ability to access your patient without losing too, losing too much heat, but their ability to keep them dry using simple methods with an absorbent cloth. Um, 
but doing it a lot and doing it with detail is probably, I would think, the gold standard. But, I, you know, I'd be so interested to hear your research mm-hmm. on it because it's, it's an area I don't think we're probably hitting as good as we should at the moment. No, I agree. And one of the things we are, one of the possible solutions to it is uh, when we do prolonged field care care training in the special forces, we we also experiment with using shelters, mm-hmm. using small shelters. So you might be transporting the patient and then you put them in a kind of like a tactical environment shelter before you unwrap the patient and when you unwrap you unwrap only the parts you need but you need to Mm. do a good assessment of the patient uh, regarding many things not only uh, not only temperature and evaporation but also maybe bleeding and uh, you know all the all the basic uh, patient assessment stuff you need to do very properly and uh, a solution in in some cases might be the use of shelters um so we are experimenting with several types of shelters at the moment mm. yeah. again um that, that's a fascinating point um on our, on our last podcast um i was um interviewing the the director of uh, medicine for mountain rescue england and wales and he, he was, Alistair was absolutely huge on providing shelter. And uh, it's a little phrase I picked up from him. He said, as soon as you control your environment and you're out of the adverse climate that you're working in and you've got a basic shelter around you, he says your ability to increase your bandwidth, so your ability to think a bit more laterally is improved. Whereas if you don't, if you're still trying to fight against environment and also treat your patient, you your ability to think is 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 um is restricted but as soon as you're controlling that environment and you're right off the elements to to the best that you can then you've got increased bandwidth and you're thinking you know you're thinking wider and you're, you're making more logical decisions so and again I, I can't agree more with you the ability to think before you deploy where am i deploying and if i have to create a shelter can I improvise or do I really need a proper one with me to, to, to do the job correctly for what I'm trying to do? I think that's such an important point to consider as, as part of your, how, how would I care for my patients? Uh, whether it's an acute evacuation or a prolonged evacuation, it's, it's a massive point. Uh, but yeah, I quite like the phrase that um, Alistair from Mountain Rescue brought up was, uh, as soon as you're in a controlled environment, your bandwidth of thought processes is increased and I think that's really, really important. Uh, wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just to um, to conclude our conversation, which we could talk so many hours on on this subject, and it's been fantastic. But one question we ask all of our guests and on TSG Talk is: if you were to pick one piece of medical equipment that you would always take with you, no matter where you are, um, what what do you think that would be? <laughs> that is a really that is a very hard one. It's well, a very difficult question. Yeah, and uh, um, no no right or wrong answers. No. Uh, lately, I've been ex- experimenting with uh, using a simple uh, heart rate uh, belt as an EEG monitor on mm-hmm. my uh, yeah, and uh, with that and a simple temperature sensor as I mm-hmm. described previously. I feel that I have a very small and simple setup for basic mm-hmm. monitoring of a patient in the, in the field. Uh, but you, you did ask for one thing, and I, I think I would probably say a portable ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not that experienced with ultrasound mm-hmm. myself yet, but I have used it mm-hmm. a bit. But there is some huge potential in pre-hospital uh, medicine so i i probably would would say a a small handheld uh, ultrasound no ex- excellent answer and you, you can have a small handheld ultrasound it's, yeah it's, i know <laughs> it's um it's a it's a really interesting question to ask people and uh, we find um it's really interesting of i think we've done 16 tsg talks now and nobody's had the same answer uh, but, but people tend to group it and some people pick treatment equipment like they'll always want a tourniquet with them um a lot of people and i think i'd group your uh, item into this want information whether it's a book or they want the ability to access information from the patients um so they they, they want something that gives them information or knowledge um yeah. or the other group that we find is people want something that can help manage the area 
Um, and we've had simple things like a whistle because that's one way I can pull everybody together to start to manage. And it's very specific to to the environments people are working in, but it's it's really it's always a fascinating um question to ask to, to get the answer. <laughs> no, that that's fantastic. Uh, so so I'd love to just try and summarize some of the points we've we've picked out and and please um let, let me know if I've missed any. But the things I've really picked up from this morning's conversation is that we have to be very cautious about using FOIL systems. They, they do tend to be the standard within the industry, but I, I think what the research is telling us is that they may put us into a false sense of security and they're probably not that effective at either preventing or managing hypothermia. So we, we have to approach them with caution. I'd probably say is the best way, way, way to put that. Um, preparation from a medical point of view of how you address hypothermia before you deploy is probably hugely important to how efficient you're going to be. So thinking about what equipment you would have available, how would you use that equipment? What's my possibility of providing shelter? If I'm doing prolonged evacuations or even shorter ones, how, how, how am I going to manage my patient with what equipment and how can I access them? Thinking through all of that, those processes before you go out to have solutions. So you've got them when, when, you, when you're faced with your patient, I think, is what will make you more effective. And I think you brought up a really good point. Good point. Preparation is, of equipment is, is really important. Um, monitoring is, I think you've brought, it's, it was really interesting what you were saying about the monitoring and, and I, I can't, I'd be really interesting in your, in your future research, but the number that you get from the monitor and the temperature is important, but it's the wider patient you're monitoring as well, because the number can be variable depending on how you're doing it and where you're operating. So I think not being focused purely on the number, but what's the big picture is something we, we should should be aware of. Uh, Trauma-induced hypothermia, people will get hypothermia when it's warm. And I think that's a good lesson for people to put in the back of their heads when they're, when they're preparing. And, uh, and I think a, a big area that um, I really liked what you brought out was how do we, the simple thing, how do we keep something dry? Because if they're wet, they get cold or they get colder than they should. So is there a, an equipment solution for it that will help? What's the evidence telling us? Or is it a basis of really good attention to the detail by the medic to provide good nursing care? But thinking that one through as well, um, that, that I picked that up. And again, looking at the research you're, you're going to be doing on that, I think you've been able to put some numbers to that and some, you know, a bit more, bit more detail. And I think that'll be really interesting to look at and it will be a significant advance in, in how we approach this area. Is, have, have I missed anything that, that you, would, you would like to add to that at all? I, I think you summed it up uh, very, very good, much better than I could. So <laughs> thank you for that. No, I, I don't think anything is uh, missing for the, for the summary. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. So, Jorgen, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you this morning. As I say, we, we could probably talk for many hours on, on even one area on, on hypothermia management. Um, so, you know, I think the knowledge you've been able to put across is going to be of, of, of huge help to anybody listening in who's either preparing or who or is trying to learn the subject of, on, on hypothermia. So thank you so much for your time. If you would like to ask any questions on this episode, we will place a post onto our LinkedIn page at TSG Associates. This edition will be in all the main podcast sites. Please like and subscribe, and good ratings are always appreciated. It really helps make the series more visible to our wider community. We'll be back again soon with another TSG Talk. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.